0: Thank you, Jeff and Schuyler and those working with our young people. And thank you, young people, for being willing to sing and bless us and lead us in worship this morning. Thank you very much. So take your Bible this morning and our study in the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8. This morning we come to another vision of Daniel. Now you'll remember last week we pointed out that chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel are largely uh, historical. They're about his life, his captivity, uh, being in captivity in Babylon. And there are some dreams in there that he interprets for Nebuchadnezzar that are actually fit into the prophecy uh, that he receives at the end of the book. But chapter 7 through 12 are pure on prophecy, God giving Daniel visions and him recording them and then explaining them. We have in this passage, you'll see this morning, some angelic interpretation. Angels help Daniel understand what he sees uh, so we, we have a vision here of, of a ram and a goat. You think, well, uh, that's an interesting thing. But these these animals, as we've seen in the last few weeks, represent kingdoms and they represent God uh, moving. Now I want to remind you that in the Bible there is this, this phrase, the time of the Gentiles. And I want you to understand that what Daniel receives and what he has received all throughout the book and interpreting dreams and what he receives in these last six chapters is all about the time of the Gentiles. Now the time of the Gentiles is that period of time when Israel is no longer dominant in the land, the kingdom has fallen, and the Gentiles rule over Israel for this period of time. Now the time of the Gentiles began in 586 B.C. with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and will continue through the tribulation until Jesus comes back at the Battle of Armageddon. So we live even though we live in the church age an age of grace we live in the time of the gentiles and another thing you'll notice prophetically and I hope you have your thinking caps on this morning because this part of Daniel is is uh is interesting but we have to think about it God's plan if you will God's sovereign design has overlapping periods of time there is the time of the gentiles which is from 586 BC till Christ comes back at the battle of Armageddon but in that time of the gentiles there is the church age. The church was born at Pentecost. And so within the time of the Gentiles, God is calling out a people that are his, the church, the bride of Christ, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And and even when the church is raptured and the church age is ended, which is what we're in now, which will end with the rapture, even during the seven-year tribulation, God will save people out of that time who will be redeemed by faith in Christ. And so we see the time of the Gentiles is that expansive period of time from 586 B.C. until Christ comes at the Battle of Armageddon, and that's what Daniel's seeing here. Now, there are four prominent kingdoms, and we talked about them last week, and they have been illustrated in these visions and dreams through animals, through an image. And so those four kingdoms, just to remind you, that are, that are part of God's sovereign control over humanity and over the Gentile nations are the Babylonian kingdom, that the first half of the book was about Daniel being under Nebuchadnezzar and in the kingdom, so the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians, which became just the Persians, the Greeks, uh, predominantly Alexander the Great and his conquest of Persia, and then the Roman Empire. And it is those four kingdoms that encompass the entirety of the time of the Gentiles. You say, well, wait a minute, the Roman Empire isn't around anymore. Well, it is, it just fell apart. And we know that in the tribulation it will be reconstituted, the Antichrist will regather those parts of the Roman Empire again. So those four nations uh, make up the plan that God has laid out, his sovereign control. Now the thing I would point out before we begin with the verses is this, for Daniel, all of this stuff was prophetic. It was all future to him, except the kingdom he lived in, Babylon, But and then he went into the Persian Empire before he died. But this was all prophetic for him when he received it, because he received this vision while he was under the Babylonian kingdom. And the, and the, the thing that is, should be very encouraging to us is that everything God said would happen, happened. Exactly. Now, we have the benefit of it being history for us, predominantly. We can look back in history and study the Babylonian empire and the Persian empire and the Greek empire and the Roman empire. And what what I pray will bless you this morning with all the facts and all the things we're going to think about is that God, listen to me, God did exactly what he said he was going to do. Exactly. So what does that tell you about the future from here? God's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. You can count on it. You can write it down. You can stake your life on it. You can stake your soul on it because God's going to do exactly what he said he's going to do. So let's look at the details. Persia, now in in chapter 8, God narrows his focus to two of those kingdoms, Persia and Greece. That's what the entire chapter's about. Babylon, Rome on the other end, but he's going to talk here about Persia and Greece. So look at the first two verses of chapter 8. Now Daniel tells us, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first. I saw in the vision, and it, was, and it so happened while I was looking, that I saw in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ule. Now he sets the time and the place for us. So you will remember from chapter 7, the first prophetic part of the book, that it was in the first year of Belshazzar he received that vision. Here he tells us it's in the third year. So three years after he had received the first vision, he receives the second vision. And he says in his vision he saw himself at Shushan the palace. Now, he wasn't physically there. Shushan's 200 miles east of of the city of Babylon. So he's under Belshazzar in the city of Babylon, but in the vision, God shows him himself in Shushan the palace. Now, if you remember reading the book of Nehemiah or the book of Esther, you'll remember this city. It was a citadel built by the Persians, and it was there. The kings hung out there a lot, especially Xerxes. And you'll see this city Uh, in Esther that's where she was and Nehemiah was the cupbearer there so Daniel sees himself in the vision in this Persian palace so now look at verses 3 and 4 as the the vision begins he said then I lifted my eyes and saw and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns and the two horns were high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last verse 4 I saw the ram pushing westward northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him nor was there any that could deliver from his hand but he did according to his will and became great now Daniel sees this ram standing by the river in his vision the ram corresponds to the bear which corresponds to uh, the Persian empire you will remember last week that the bear had had uh, two ribs and one was higher than the other remember that Everybody goes, no, I don't remember that. Okay, go home. Chapter 7, you'll see there was this bear. The bear represents the, the Persian Empire. Well, here the ram represents the Persian Empire. And the two horns that came up on the ram, one greater than the other, is the fact that the Persians dominated the, the Medes and eventually took over the whole kingdom. So this vision is a, is a perfect illustration of the Persian Empire. And I noticed in the directions that it pushed, which means conquests. this ram representing the Persians went northward, westward and to the south why didn't it go to the east because it was in the east okay it don't it didn't push to the east because it is in the east so from the east the Persian the Persian empire pushed northward and westward and south and and by the way historically and what you'll see in a minute the reason that it pushed westward is what stirred up Alexander the Great because the Persians at one point, had the idea that they would expand their empire and they invaded the homeland of Greece more than once. And when Alexander came to power, one of his rallying cries to get all the Greek states to come together and fight Persia was, they've invaded our homeland and we're going to make them pay. And uh, he was pretty good at it. So uh, he used the fact that the Persians pushed westward to stir them up uh, so that he could uh, fight them or take his army into Persia when he did. And, of course, God had the plan all along because God used Alexander the Great to defeat the Persian Empire. Now, you'll see that in verses 5 to 7. Look at it. And as I was considering, he's watching this this, uh, ram, and he said, as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. Well, who's in the west? The Greeks, okay? And he says, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which he had seen, which I had seen standing by the river, and ran at him with furious power. Verse 7, and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand." Imagine for a moment Daniel receiving this vision. I mean, just think about it for a minute. He's in Babylon minding his own business, and God gives him this vision. And he sees this ram, and he sees this goat, and he sees the the goat come across the earth without touching it and smash into the ram and destroy it and pulverize it and break the horns. And you'll find out in a moment that Daniel didn't know what all this meant when he received it. An angel tells him what it means later. Even though he had the gift of, of understanding dreams, he didn't understand all this because it was so future to him. It was all ahead of him. He didn't know. And so he sees in this vision the Greek empire, the swiftness of this goat across the land and his feet aren't touching the ground, speaks to the swiftness with which Alexander the Great moved his armies. Keep in mind, God's revealing this before it happened. And when you look back at history of his armies swiftly and quickly from one place to the other, in fact, Alexander only had, I like, I've, I've read a lot about Alexander, I like history, and I particularly like reading about him. <clears throat> he had 10,000 cavalry, of which he led, he was the head of his cavalry of the Horse, the horse Brigade, and he had about 40,000 foot soldiers, uh, hoplites, and they used the phalanx system that his father, Philip, invented. With 50,000 troops, essentially, he conquered an entire empire. I mean, and he did it with such, sweet, such swiftness and efficiency that the military strategists today still marvel at how he was able to do what he did. Well, you and I know how he did what he did. We got the book, right? We know that he couldn't fail. I mean, we know he couldn't mess it up. You know why? Because God said he was going to do it before he did it. So we, we marvel at his, at his military acumen and he and he was wise, but there was a there was a power behind him, and he didn't even know it. In fact, let me throw this in for you for free. Okay. After he defeated uh, the Persians at the first couple of battles, they retreated to regroup themselves. And when they retreated, he went down the coast down to Israel, and you get the whole deal with the with the city of Tyre, uh, and Sidon, and and. They're out in the island and read the history of that. Alexander. They told Alexander, you can't get to us because we're on this island. Oh, he got to them. Okay? He, he wouldn't give up. He took the old city and threw it in the ocean and built a causeway out to the island and destroyed them all. But guess what happened when he got down to Israel? He got to Jerusalem. He comes to the city of Jerusalem and the walls. And the priests come out with the book of Daniel. And they go, hey, we got something we think you'll find interesting. And they showed him this prophecy and told him it's about you. You're the, you're the goat. You're the one from the West. And he was so impressed with the prophecy of the Jews that he went around the city and left them all. Didn't even attack them. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? That's a good tactic. Those guys were smart. Hey, let's show you something that I think you'll like. And by the way, this says you're going to win. I'm sure he liked that, okay? But this is the Alexander. That's the, the goat, the swiftness. Now, the notable horn is him. He's the first king. He's the most notable king of the Greek empire and powerful. Nobody could stop him. There were three battles that he fought with the, with the Persians. And I don't want to get too much into history, but it's good. And Granicus, Issus, and, and, and uh, Guagamella, he met the Persians. And what's impressive about it is the Persians knew he were, knew he was coming and they would pick the spot they wanted to fight. Of course, when you're a general, you want to pick the spot that's best for you, but it didn't make any difference. The last battle that broke the Persians' back, that that basically ended the thing. The Persians had numbers. They probably had he had 50,000, they probably had 250,000. I mean, it's 2 to 1, 3 to 1, right? And Alexander don't care. It is amazing. I mean, I'm not sure if you were a general, you would want to take 50,000 against 250,000, right? Not what I had a howitzer or a tank or something, right? So he shows up, and Alexander's plan was always this. He would would so lay out his forces that it would create a gap in the enemy's line somewhere. He would would move out, flank them, make them move their troops, and whenever they would move their troops, it would create a gap. And then he would take his cavalry and go right through that gap, right into the heart of them. And it would freak him out. In fact, the Persian king had his chariot and all of his, you know, uh, immortals, which was their elite troops around him. And he did exactly that in the final battle. He made his troops, he had a plan, they spread out, and the, and the Persians moved to meet him and it created a hole. And Alexander led his cavalry in the front line through the hole and went right at the king. Well, it freaked the king out so bad that he got in his chariot and ran. Well, what happens when the king runs? All the rest of the troops go, man, the king just left. Maybe we should leave too. All right? And so he, Alexander routed them. That's exactly what it's saying here. Powerful. God predicted nobody will be able to stop him. This, this goat will come from the west and destroy the kingdom, and he, and he did that. Now, now, the next part is even as impressive or more than just the winning of battles. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. That's Alexander. He went almost to India. Listen to what it says here. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. What God revealed was that he would die prematurely. At 32 years old in Babylon, in the city of Babylon, he died. Now, historians have all kinds of opinions about what he died from. Drunkenness and you know, some disease. Some think he was poisoned. I know how he died. God said he was going to die. It, it, I don't know. It doesn't matter what God used to take him out. But God said the notable horn would be broken off. And so at 32 years old, he died. And then Cassander and Antigonus and Seleucus and Ptolemy were his four generals, and they divided the kingdom among his four generals, which verse 8 says, four notable horns came up. Horns always represent kings or leaders. Four notable horns came up that weren't as great as him, and they were the, the four generals who divided up the Greek empire. And so, again, 300 years before Alexander got here, before the guy was born, God's telling us exactly. What was going to happen now again we have to prove daniel daniel didn't know but we have to well he will know because the angel told him but we can look back and track everything god said and see that it's exactly right now listen what's that if you're watching online what does that mean it means that jesus christ did exactly what he said he did it means that god loves you and he controls all of human history and god said he loves you and he wants to save you why wouldn't you come to the god who can do all this well, wouldn't you trust him? Why well, wouldn't you know that if he says those who are lost are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire and those who are saved are going to spend eternity with him, why would you think he's not serious about that? Why would you think he's not going to do exactly what he said? So Daniel received his vision and we know what happened. Now, beginning in verse 9, the vision begins to focus on what we call, what you see in the Bible is called the little horn, okay? There's a little horn here. And there's a little horn in the book of Revelation. And so we get some more insight here, which I think is very profitable for us. Look at verses 9 to 12. And out of one of them, out of one of them who? One of those four notable horns. Out of one of those kingdoms, the generals that split up the Greek kingdom, out of one of those kingdoms came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground and he did all this and prospered. Because we have the advantage of history, and where we are today, we know who this is talking about. Daniel could not have possibly known when he received this until the angel told him. Out of the Seleucid Empire, the two generals, by the way, historically, that we see a lot in history are the Seleucid Empire and then the Ptolemies in Egypt. If you read anything about history or studied in school, Cleopatra and the Romans, all of the Ptolemy empire in Egypt. But the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fought one another for 300 years, 200 years. And the Seleucid kings would come down past Israel and fight Egypt. And Egypt would go past Israel, back up. And every time these armies would pass by Jerusalem, guess what happened? Many times they would just thump Israel on the way by, just, just for, you know, just because they could particularly the Seleucids. They would come by and just conquer Israel again, destroy them, take their money, and head on down to Egypt and, and fight with the Egyptians. In that whole process, and we don't have time to talk about all the various kings, there was a guy who came to the throne of the Seleucid Empire called Antiochus, and he took the title Antiochus Epiphanes. That's his title. Epiphanes means Deity of one of the meanings that it's used for. So what he said of himself is he considered himself deity, either a demigod or like God, which we see in this verse right here that he lifted himself up even to the prince of the people, meaning he lifted himself up to be like Jesus, to be like God. And so Antiochus Epiphanes is the guy, is the little horn here who comes down against Israel. Now notice what it says about him here. He moved against the glorious land. That's Israel. That's God's people. He was cruel to them. I mean, you should read the history. He didn't like them. He didn't like the Jews. Well, he's the fir- not the first in a long line of people in history who didn't like the Jews. So he took it out on them. Every time he would go by there, he would kill them and take them into captivity and take whatever they had. But there came a point where he came down to, to Israel and he decided, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, he decided that the Jews could no longer be Jewish. Now he was of greek descent okay and so he said you're going to have to be greek you're going to have to not be jewish anymore in fact we're not going to let you practice judaism anymore no more temple no more sacrifices no more following the law no more circumcising your male children on the seventh day nothing nothing that the law said they were supposed to do You can't do any of that. In fact, you can't sacrifice to God anymore. In the morning and the evening sacrifice, no more sacrifices on pain of death. If they caught someone with the law, caught somebody practicing Judaism in any way, they executed them. So you're not allowed to be Jewish anymore. That's exactly what God revealed here. This guy caused the daily sacrifices to cease. In fact, that wasn't good enough for him. It wasn't good enough that he came to the Jews and said, you can't be Jewish anymore. He said to them, in fact... We're going to offer a a pig on the altar and and he caused the religious people to partake of it, to eat it. An unclean animal offered on the the altar would normally be offered to God. He did that and then he took a statue of Zeus, a Greek false deity, and put it in the temple and caused them to worship Zeus and the Greek gods. So this guy brought blasphemy to Jerusalem and persecuted them. Now, if you're interested in history at all, you've heard of the Maccabees, right? The Maccabee revolt. Because of this, Judas Maccabee was one of three or four brothers. I forgot how many of them there were. And their dad is the one who began to resist him. And then Judas became the most famous Maccabee because he led the revolt that actually removed the Seleucids from Jerusalem. And then they rededicated the temple, reconstituted the sacrifices. Now, you might be wondering right now, what in the world? Why did God tell us all that? Why, you know, why did God pick that guy in that kingdom? Well, I'm going to tell you. God doesn't put stuff in the Bible for no reason. There's another fellow coming. Listen very carefully. There's another guy coming when we leave here. When the church is raptured and the tribulation begins, there's a guy coming. What do we call him? The Antichrist, okay? You know, you know who Antiochus Epiphanes points us to? That guy. He is the little horn. He's a type. He's a foreshadow of what the Antichrist is going to be like. Except this. The Antichrist will be more wicked and more hateful than this guy ever thought he could be. The Antichrist will be Antiochus Epiphanes on steroids. But what what God gives us here is a foreshadow of what is to be expected in the future. Antichrist will do exactly what he did. Antichrist at halfway through the tribulation will break his covenant with Israel. He'll go in and forbid worship. He'll for, he, he's going to do exactly the same thing. On pain of death, he's going to kill them, persecute them, try to listen, Antichrist knows God's plan. He knows what God has determined, that God is going to set up Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Lord, on the throne over Israel, and the kingdom of Israel is going to be the center of the world and create a new heaven, a new earth, his kingdom age. Antichrist knows, and Satan is the power behind these evil men, knows that if he could kill all the Jews, God can't do his plan. All through the Bible, Satan has worked hard to stop Jesus from being born, to stop Jesus from doing the things he do. He tempted Jesus said, hey, if you'll worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Why would he say that? he doesn't want Jesus to get the kingdoms of the world God's way. He wants him to do it his way. By the way, same thing he did to Adam and Eve. God's going to give you something, but why don't you do it my way and still do it God's way? Well, we're masters of that, aren't we? God, thank you, but I'll take care of this. No, let's don't do that, all right? So, so the Antichrist is going to be this guy that's going to come in the tribulation who's going to be everything that Antiochus Epiphanes was, except much, much worse. Okay. Now, Daniel, even though he had the gift of understanding dreams, didn't really have a clue. I mean, I'm sure Daniel understood God's given me visions about nations and kingdoms and things that are happen, but he didn't understand it. So look at verses 13 and 14. Daniel hears a conversation between two angels. I really like this stuff right here. When you get to, you get to see behind the curtain, uh, you know, here's a couple of angels having a conversation. You, do you wonder what angels talk about? they talk about us? I think they do. I mean, I think they look at one another and go, I know God's got a plan. But man, what a messed up bunch of creatures down there, right? Listen to what these two angels are saying right here. Then Daniel said, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one. Now he's talking about two angels. And one said that certain one, in other words, they said to one another who was speaking, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation the giving of both the sanctuary and the host of uh, to be trampled under underfoot and he said to me one angel said to the other for 2300 days then the sanctuary will be cleansed so get this conversation Daniel seeing the vision he's like, his head's got to be swimming. You'll see at the end, Daniel was physically sick after he got this, after this vision. It, it really affected him. So while he's getting it, his head's probably swimming. He's trying to figure out what's going on. And he hears these two angels talking. And one angel says to the other, hey, how long is this, this Antiochus Epiphany, he's a little horn, how long is this desecration going to be allowed to go on? How, how long is God going to allow This guy to stop the daily sacrifices and to defame the temple and blaspheme God's name, how long is God going to put up with that? And the other angel had an exact answer. Get this now, exact. He said, well, 2,300 days. Don't you love it when the Bible does that? It's not like an about, well, you know, for some months or for a little while. No, the angel goes, well, that's easy, 2,300 days. Who determined the 2,300 days? God did. The angel just happened to know about it. Now, here's the question everybody wants to know. What 2,300 days? Well, you're glad you came today because I'm going to tell you. There are two understandings of this, and, and I, I like the literal day interpretation myself, but there's one that has to do with the sacrifices, and I'll tell you about them both. First of all, if you take 2,300 days, the Jewish calendar, and you've got to remember this because if you try to do biblical reckoning on our Julian calendar, you're going to get messed up. Jewish calendar was 360 days period every year. No, don't add a day, don't take a, in a no leap years, 360 days a year. So if you divide 360 into 2,300 days, you get just over six years. Watch this. Antiochus Epiphanes entered Jerusalem for the first time in 170 B.C., historical fact. He was cast out by the Maccabees in 164 B.C. How long is that, by the way? That's six years, isn't it? Now, we don't have the exact month, and, you know, it's a little over six years. But the point is, when the angel said 2,300 days, he was right. And it hadn't even happened yet. That's the cool part. Antiochus Epiphanes wasn't even born. And God said, well, it's going to be 2,300 days. He's going to do this to Jerusalem. Now, some scholars like to say, well there are two sacrifices a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. And since they're talking about the sacrifices not being able to be done and the angel's asking, how long were the sacrifices not going to be done? Some scholars like to say, well, he's talking about the sacrifices, not literal days. So if you divide the 2,300 days by two sacrifices a day, you come up with basically three years and 70 days or three years and some days. Yeah, Well, God had messed up because listen to this. It was in 167, that he actually defiled the temple. Remember, he would come back and forth, the, the 170. It was in 167, he actually gave the decree, the edict that couldn't be Jews anymore, and the temple was cleansed in 164. Last time I checked, that's just over three years. So it doesn't matter which way you understand it, because both are true. In other words, he defiled Israel as a nation for six years, a little over, and he also defiled the temple for just over three years. So I hope it encourages you that God completely revealed exactly what was going to happen hundreds of years before it ever happened. And we have the privilege to look back and see that it happened now. Very quickly, Daniel, you can only imagine, even as wise as he was and as close to God as he was, he knew this was about his people. He knew this was about Israel. And keep in mind, though, Daniel's still in captivity. He's still under the Babylonian Empire, under Belshazzar. The Jews have not returned to the land yet. And so all these visions that he's receiving is about the Jews being back in the land and all that's going to happen to them in, in the interim. So Daniel's head must have really been swimming. Like, man, I don't, I don't understand. God said we're going to go back. And then all this stuff's about... Watch verses 15 to 27. Look at this. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, an angel. An angel shows up to talk to Daniel now, verse 16, uh, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of uh, Ule the river, where he was seeing the vision, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he hears a voice say to Gabriel, whom we know is an angel, because where have we seen Gabriel before? How about Mary and Joseph and you know all throughout the Bible? Gabriel is, you, I've read scholars call him the messenger angel. I'm not sure he wants that title, but the fact is he gets dispatched to talk to people when God wants them to talk to. Okay? So we see in verse 16, a voice says to Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel, go tell Daniel what this vision means. Look at verse 17. So he came near where I stood and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand son of man that the vision refers to the time of the end. What a tremendous passage. Here's Daniel. A man receiving visions directly from God, and yet when Gabriel shows up, Daniel's afraid. And he falls on his face. And Gabriel, as you always read in the Bible, angels and even Jesus touches them, picks them up, and sets them back on their feet and, and and talks to them. Why do you think Daniel was afraid? Same reason we'd be afraid. Gabriel, because he said so, he said so before, Gabriel stands in the presence of God Almighty. I mean, think about that. Gabriel says, man, I stand next to the throne. In fact, when he was talking to, uh, what's the dude's name who was in the temple right before Jesus was born? Can't think of it right now. Anyway, he's in there giving the sacrifice and Gabriel shows up and and remember the guy questioned Gabriel. Gabriel said, man, do you know who I am? I stand next to God. You can believe what I tell you. That's the same Gabriel showed up here. So Gabriel shows up to Daniel. Daniel's afraid. I'm going to tell you why he's afraid. Because Gabriel is is probably radiating the glory of God, and we're sinful. And Daniel was a sinful man. And when you stand in the presence of the glory of God, we should be afraid. When you stand in the presence of the holiness of God, we should be afraid. Why? Because we are as unholy as it gets. We're, We're as unrighteous as it gets in our nature and in our flesh and our humanity. We're sinful even after we're saved. And to be in the presence of the holiness of God or an angel who's been standing in the presence of God made Daniel afraid and he fell on his face. The poet, Listen, the people today, and listen online very carefully, the people today who are arrogant and reject Jesus Christ, and they say, yeah, when I see God, I'll plead my case. No, you won't. No, you won't. Kind of hard to plead your case when you're on your face in front of the throne of God. There's no pleading your case. I'll tell you, if you want somebody to plead your case, you need Jesus to plead your case. Because Jesus has the ear of the Father. So if you want somebody on your side as an advocate, come to Jesus and get saved. He'll be your advocate. He's the one who will bring you into the presence of the Father and you'll be accepted. Not us, on our own. And Daniel understood that. So Daniel fell on his face. He was afraid and, and, and the angel lifted him up. Now look at Verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time and the end shall be. Now, pause there for a minute. He tells Daniel right up, Daniel, these things are are end times. You say, well, Daniel, it wasn't really end times right before Jesus came. Yes, the whole time of the Gentiles is the end times. This is the last, this is, listen, you got to understand this. We are in the last part of God's plan. There's no more plan past this. Church is going to get rapture, tribulation, Jesus come back, end of the time of Gentiles, kingdom age. We're in the end. You say, well, I've been waiting all my life. Yeah, your life is about this big inside of all of God's plan. Okay. It doesn't matter. We are, the angel said, Daniel, I'm giving you a vision. You're getting a vision about the end. Well, if Daniel got it 500 BC, how close to the end you think we are today? A well, lot closer than Daniel was. So we're near the end. And the angel tells him that. Look at verse 20. Now he tells it. You think, well, pastor, how do you know it means all these kingdoms? Well, right here. Look at verse 20. The ram, which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. We don't make this up. Here it is. Okay. Look at verse 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between the eyes is the first king. Okay, Greek, Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation, but not with its power. Those four generals never had the power Alexander had. They never had the kingdom he had. Verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. You know why it's not by his own power? Because Satan is behind all of this. Satan is always behind the evil that attacked God's plan. So he tells him in verse 24, Gabriel tells Daniel, uh, he'll, be pow- he'll his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. That's God's people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule and he shall exalt himself in his heart he shall destroy many in their prosperity he shall even rise against the prince of princes he's going to think himself a god which is an affront to the real god that's what gabriel's saying but he shall be broken without human means what's that mean god's gonna kill him god'll god'll deal with him verse 26 in the vision of the evening and the mornings which was told is true Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. It doesn't mean seal it up as not tell it, but write it down and guard it and pass it on so people will know. Verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Let me give you three things and we'll close. Number one. The primary thing that we take away from this is God is absolutely sovereign. Without without, mitigation, God is sovereign. The world is not out of control. Even in the worst part of humanity in in modern time when Hitler was killing six million Jews and and the world was on the verge of destroying itself, the world is not out of control because God has it under control. Now, listen, God's not responsible for man's wickedness and man's stupidity. We do a lot of stuff to ourselves, but God is sovereign, and the world's not going to destroy itself until God's ready for it to be destroyed. He'll be the one doing the destroying, okay? Not us. So God's sovereign over everything that happens. And if God's sovereign over the affairs of the world, he's sovereign over your life and mine. He's sovereign. Nothing happens to us that he don't know about. Nothing happens that he isn't in control. Nothing. That were to encourage us. That order to comfort us. Now things happen in life that we don't understand. Things happen all the time that we don't understand. But God's still sovereign. He's in control and we trust him. Secondly, notice Satan's influence. Satanic influence is just as real today as it was when Daniel received his vision. Satan is hard at work today trying to steal our young people. Satan's hard at work today trying to destroy society and destroy homes and marriages and families. And all this stuff in society today that's so popular about same-sex marriage and destroying God's definition of marriage, why is Satan pushing that so hard? Because it destroys the very foundation of how God created society. God wants to save people, but the more we're resistant, the more we harm ourselves as a society. God uh, is sovereign. Satan influences. Satan's moving to kill and destroy. He always does that. Finally, finally. There's coming a time when God's already determined he's going to end all wickedness. It's already already settled. It's already written down. Jesus is going to come back one day, set up his kingdom, and wickedness will be destroyed. So don't let it it overcome you. Here's the last thing. Today is a day of opportunity. And when I mean today, I mean right now. If you're not saved, today's an opportunity. The day in which we live in is a day of opportunity. God is right now patient, long-suffering, storing up his wrath, as it were, so that he could administer grace. But please, please understand. There's coming a day when the rest of God's plan is gonna be put into motion and it'll be too late. Church is gonna be raptured. Judgment's gonna begin to fall into tribulation. Antichrist will bring wickedness on this world like it's never been known before. And then the King of kings and Lord of lords will show up and destroy all that wickedness. And what, I'm, what my prayer for you is that you be on the right side of this thing. That you be on the winning side. That you be in Jesus Christ. They say, How do I do that, Pastor? Confess your sin to God and ask Him to save you. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine, pay for the sin of the whole world. And if you'll pray and confess your sin, God, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved, He'll forgive your sin. He'll give you eternal life. And no matter what happens in this world, you'll be safe in Him. Well, that's a good deal. Because listen, you know what's going to happen. We just read it. You know what's going to happen. Are you ready for it to happen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for revealing these things to us. God, may we take it to heart. Help us, God, to be energized to share the gospel with those around us, Lord, because their soul is at stake. God, save the lost today. If there's somebody under the hearing of your word in this room or online, God, that they might just pause right now and say, God, I believe you are sovereign and I believe you love me. And God, I'm sorry for my sin. Forgive me, save me right now, God. Save my soul. Be my Lord and my Savior. And God, you'll do it. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. If you need to come as we stand and sing, come on the first verse. I'll be glad to pray with you.